Now bring to us um, the word of God on a wobbly. <laughs> All right. Fixed it. Okay. Let's pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Susan. We thank you that she's your daughter, um, she's our sister, and she is a mother in this church. And I pray, Lord, that you would open hearts and minds to receive your word uh, through the labor that she has done for them this week. In your name, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. Well, good morning. We are just passing the midway point in our summer sermon series in the book of Acts. I don't know about you, but this book has always seemed really dynamic and electric to me, kind of like a Peter Jackson movie where you're kind of bludgeoned with fast-paced drama and excitement with one extraordinary event happening right after the other. Um, And this morning's uh, events and story fits right in. Um, In case you're unfamiliar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira and didn't catch it in the reading just now, it's the story of a couple who does a good deed, does it halfway, and then lies about it. And then all of a sudden they die because of it. Um, I would argue that it's one of the most horrifying stories in all of the, Old Te- in the New Testament. And I would personally say that it may be one of the hardest to preach on. Um, the reality of sin, of our moral failure, coupled with the reality of Jesus' fierce, swift judgment of that sin, is a reality that not only discomfits me, it embarrasses me. This is exactly the kind of scripture passage that I keep hoping my non-believing friends do not bring up and ask me about. Um, It's not even in the Old Testament, so we don't have the option to distance ourselves from it a little and say, you know, that was then and this is now. Before Jesus came, God thought one way about sin, he was a little harsh. But after Jesus came, he's more about the peace, love, and understanding. But no, we do not have that luxury. So... If listening to a sermon about sin and judgment is uncomfortable, um, please hang in there with me and know that I would happily trade places with you this morning. (laughs) Um, But I do sincerely believe this passage is a gift to us, both the original historic incident itself and the fact that it was preserved in Scripture for us to learn from. I believe this passage demonstrates a truth that we're unlikely to stumble upon ourselves, and that is the truth that there is a direct, inviolable connection between the judgment of Jesus and the blessing of Jesus. How are judgment and blessing connected? Let's pick up where we left off last week. In last week's sermon, we saw a most vivid and startling illustration of blessing as we witnessed the apostles going to a man lame from birth and leaving him fully healed and walking. The early church, personified here, in the action of the church leaders, Peter and John, was perhaps the most blessed and blessing community the world has seen so far. The words blessed and blessing are used a lot in some Christian circles, but what exactly do they mean? In the Hebrew language, which was the language of the early Jews, God's chosen people, the word for blessing means something like this, to endow or provide or put into someone the power for their prosperity, fruitfulness, longevity, well-being, success. When a man or woman or child is blessed, they are being supplied with what is needed to bring goodness and strength into his or her life. Now, as I was looking into the word blessing, I couldn't help but think of the Walgreens store I go to. Um, 
right, there's one right at the corner of Clark and Wilson near I, where I live. And a while ago, I started noticing that the clerks at Walgreens would say, thank you and be well, or be well, as they handed me my bag with my Q-tips or my deodorant or whatever. I thought it was a little weird, but also kind of sweet in a faceless corporate way. <laughs> but be well is an attempt at a blessing. Yeah. Well, back in March, the Walgreens company changed its policy and no longer requires its employees to say that. One problem, of course, was that customers did notice that the be well blessing was obviously flowing from a mandated corporate policy rather from the hearts of the employees. Um, but another issue was that some of the Walgreens workers objected to having to say be well under circumstances where it could be misinterpreted as ironic or even sarcastic. Employees did not like handing a bottle of, say, anti-nausea pills to a person undergoing chemotherapy and, and saying, be well. Um, there's a huge disconnect between our ability to say the words be well to someone and our abilities to make them well or their abilities to make themselves well. Thinking, feeling people tend to object when asked to take a glimpse into someone's dark chasm of suffering and pain and sprinkle happy thoughts over it. It's not just obnoxious and alienating, but it's no help at all. But in Hebrew, a blessing is not just the noise that comes out of our mouth when we're trying to be friendly. In a true blessing, a person's helplessness, weaknesses, and pain are actually healed up and filled up and compensated for by the strength of God himself. An act of true blessing transfers strength and healing and genuine prosperity from the blesser to the blessed. Like the layman, we don't have the power to bless ourselves, and like Peter and John, we in ourselves don't have the power to bless others. But somehow, things are different when the blessing comes from Jesus. A blessing connected to the person of Jesus Christ brings power to heal, strengthen, and save. So, how is this blessing of Jesus related to the judging Jesus? Let's keep going. We're going to jump into our text now. Um, it's in your bulletins, or you can turn in your Bibles. We're going to pick up at the end of chapter 4 in Acts. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who is also called Barnabas by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. With details like this, it's easy to imagine a little bit of the context for Ananias and Sapphira's decisions. When I read about the early church, I find it very compelling, very dynamic, very attractive, but it also sounds more than a little intense. There's a sort of pressure that comes with living in a really great, closely-knit community. And the community of the early church probably surpasses any others we've experienced in terms of unity says the full number of the people were one heart and one soul. In addition, they were facing growing persecution from outside, and they were meeting together every day. That's intense. Because you already know, if you've tried in any way to press into unity with a person or a group, you know that unity is costly. 
Each person is generally making significant sacrifices of privacy, preferences, independence, in this case, money. Intensity in the early church also stemmed from the fact that those joining the church were coming from all over the known world and both ends of the wealth spectrum. Cultural differences and inequalities and discrepancies create tension. It's quite awkward for a well-resourced person to be in a close, loving relationship with someone of very few resources. And it's not less awkward for a person with few resources to be in close relationship with someone who has lots of resources. It raises all sorts of uncomfortable, practical, relational, and theological questions. As Emmanuel is blessed with people coming from a wider and wider range of backgrounds, ethnicities, and economic stations, we will have the opportunity to press into this awkwardness. May God bring that day quickly. But Barnabas and the others responded to these discrepancies between their abundance and the needs of others by refusing to call his property his own. Instead, he realized it was God's, so he sold it and had the church distribute it to those in need. Ananias and Sapphira responded differently. Perhaps they felt that move was a little too radical or a little too pious for them. Or maybe they had genuinely generous hearts. After all, they did give enough of their proceeds to try to pass for the whole thing. Maybe they had financial problems of their own that they were unwilling to uh, share with the community. Or maybe it was more calculating than that. Maybe they wanted the glory of giving without having to follow through. We don't know exactly what drove them, but let's look at what we do know. This is picking up at the beginning of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back some, for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias and Sapphira decided that instead of fully entering into the generosity and unity of their church, they were going to secretly keep back part of what they'd promised. In the original language of this passage, holding back can be translated as embezzlement. Clearly, they had entered some sort of agreement with the church to bring the whole price, and then they cheated on that agreement. Peter makes it very clear in a moment they, they were under no obligation to give the church anything. They could have given part, or all, or none. But the big deal in holding back was the integrity gap. Ananias and Sapphira intentionally created an illusion that they were all in when they were really holding back here in a little private reality of deception and hypocrisy. And they figured that they could manage the reality gap with a lie. What happens when we intentionally turn away from the truth like this? When Ananias and Sapphira turned from the truth, they opened up that gap in themselves to the father of lies, Peter's very first response to Ananias' lie is, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? This assessment is very important for us to pay attention to. That little gap, the one created by hidden sin, is the one to watch because hidden sin leaves us vulnerable to our adversary, Satan. A brief word about Satan. The church, informed by the Bible, teaches that Satan is a literal being, a fallen angel, but he's also understood to be the personification of anything that sets itself against God and human beings. Satan's name means adversary or enemy. 
So if you're not sure what you think about Satan as a literal being, feel free to think of the word Satan as shorthand for anything and everything that works against God and humanity. Everything that presses for our death and destruction. And having unconfessed sin in our lives is like leaving a chair open for our enemy. That chair may remain unoccupied for a long time. Hidden sin can fester for a while before it becomes evident. Scripture says elsewhere that Satan roams to and fro throughout the earth, seeking whom he may devour. Hidden sin is like fresh meat. The longer it sits out there, the louder and ranker the smell is, and the more likely it is to attract our enemy who's always sniffing around. And this was a particularly bad time to be making room for Satan. Think about it. This is a unique time in history, the crux of all of history. Jesus had just dealt a mortal blow to death, and our troubled world is, for the first time since we left the garden, in pain and shame. We are breathing our first deep lungful of fresh life after thousands and thousands of years of oppression by sin. The first whiff of a true reunion with God is being breathed into our nostrils. There is fresh wind and fresh fire as the Holy Spirit comes in power with healing and blessing for all the nations. This is the beginning of the new creation. So when we look at this human couple, Ananias and Sapphira, standing on the brink of a renewed world, we're reminded of that first couple, Adam and Eve, standing at the edge of a newly created world. In both cases, the enemy was right there, breathing down our necks, trying to drive a wedge between us and God. Now, Satan's goals never change, and his methods never change, so I think it's worthwhile to look briefly but closely at how the adversary operates when he comes by to make conversation with us. We're going to look at just a sentence or two from this morning's Old Testament reading from Genesis 3, and hear how Satan deceived the first couple into believing that God's blessing was a curse and a burden, and how he tempted them into the act of sin that ushered all trouble, weakness, sorrow, and suffering, destruction into our lives. The first move he makes is a single question. He says, did God actually say that? It sounds like an ordinary question, but there's a lot of subtext under there. There's a lot of meaning underneath the words, and it is full of lies. In Revelation, God is described as the accuser of the church who accuses us day and night before the throne of God. Satan accuses us before God, but he is also eternally accusing God before us. And his lies against God usually take one of three forms. God is not here. God has not spoken. God is not good. You can hear all three of these questions are these, these lies in this question just by accenting the different words. Did God really say that? Which God? What God? Are you sure God isn't merely a construct of oppressive power structures designed to keep you in line? God is a trump card to prevent ignorant people from thinking for themselves. God is just a projection of your own needs and your own wishes and your own anxieties and whatever. Second lie. Did God really say that? 
I know it sounds like he said that, but hey, it's really hard to tell what was meant in the original context, and everybody's got an agenda when it comes to interpreting scripture. I think it's pretty arrogant to claim that God said anything. I can name 10 really smart people and 40 really loving people who totally disagree with you. And then there's number three. Did God really say that? That's cruel. That's wicked. A good God would never say something like that. So if he did say that, I want nothing to do with him. If God operates that way, he's evil. There's a lot more that could be said here. Satan's lies are so often repeated that they have the ring of truth. But what he speaks to us is always deceitful and always designed to lure us away from Jesus. Over and over he whispers, God does not exist. God does not speak. God is not good. That is why all sins are sins of unbelief. Our unbelief in the presence of God, our unbelief in the revelation of God, or unbelief in the goodness of God. And often it's all three. Once these lies are accepted, the enemy can afford to be much bolder. And his second attack is just a flat-out lie. You shall not surely die, he says. The consequences of sin are not so bad. You're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Except, of course, it isn't. It isn't good. Sin always leads to death. Sin always leads to death. Let's see how it worked out for Ananias and Sapphira. We'll pick back up with Peter here. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. In great fear came upon all those who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Sapphira's story follows the same pattern. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So the leader of the church names the sin, emphasizes the pointlessness of the sin, illustrates the gravity of their sin, and then they die. They drop dead right on the spot, right where they stood, and everyone who hears about it is filled with fear. Why? If you're like me, this is the main question, almost the only question that interests me when I read this story. Why would God do this? I think there's really only one answer to this question. It's the same reason that God does 
everything he does. He did it to reveal more fully the character of Jesus Christ. This swift and mighty judgment of sin in the first days of the church reveals the truth that Jesus has the power to bless his people and the whole world by overthrowing everything that comes against us to destroy us. I believe Peter spoke prophetically about this reality just a few chapters earlier. Right after the healing of the lame man, Peter gives a speech. He quotes Moses saying, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet. He's referring to Jesus. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And then referring to the covenant that God made with Abraham, And in your offspring, that is, through the church, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. How does Jesus bless us? Not with cheery words, and not even just by exchanging his truth for our weaknesses as we go about our lives. He blesses us by turning every one of us from our wickedness. Because sin destroys our awareness of the presence of the Lord and the truth of the Lord and the goodness of the Lord, because sin is at the root of all trouble and suffering and misery in the world, because sin has spread so thoroughly into the earth that it affects and infects even all of creation and therefore lies even at the root of natural disasters and genetic diseases and freak accidents, we know that a God who fails to deal with sin fails to bless us. Conversely, the God who names sin as the evil it is and triumphs over it is the God who is capable and desires to bless and heal us to the utmost. All of God's character is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He is holy, glorious, good, meek, tender, mild, patient, kind. In him there is no end to love. He is pure love, and in the face of his love, not even the tiniest blemish or faintest taint of of sin can survive. Love will ultimately cast out all sin, And when all sin is gone, all fear goes with it. If the face of Jesus, our judge, is the face of pure love, why is it so threatening to us? In the Old Testament, it's written, no one can look upon the face of God and live. Any desire we have to be near God, to draw close to God and be intimate with him, is a fatal attraction. I think that's why it's so hard to hear our sins being named and called out. We feel the reality of sin in our lives, and we identify with it so closely that when we hear words of judgment, it smells like death to us. If you've ever had a bad reaction to a friend or a caseworker or a coworker who offered you some genuinely constructive criticism, you know this reality. Correction, criticism, judgment... We tend to react to it all as if it's something toxic that's going to kill us. And that's because, in a sense, we are being called to die. We're being called to die to that thing that's a part of us. 
Sin always leads to death. The only question is whether it leads to our death or merely the death of our sins. We can cling to sin and die, or we can cling to Jesus and live. Scripture calls it putting to death the old man or the old woman or casting off the old nature. We are called through the death of Jesus to die to our sins so that we might be born again and live in Jesus. In the New Testament, it is written, we shall be made like Jesus when we see him face to face. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. All those who put their trust in him will be made pure. Even poor old Ananias and Sapphira, as surely as they put their trust in Jesus, were freed from their sad, stingy, small, little hidden sin the moment they died and looked on the face of Jesus. And because Jesus has dealt triumphantly with sin, so can we. As sinful as we are, and we are all at least as sinful as Ananias and Sapphira, he has made a way for us to be made more like him moment by ordinary moment. We can realign ourselves with his reality and position ourselves to bless our neighbors in his name by practicing a very simple act, the act of confession. Confession is the act of voluntarily submitting ourselves to the judgment of God and actively agreeing with him. When we confess our hidden sins or our unbelief, we bury our sins with Jesus and receive his forgiveness and healing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. Our sins will die and we will live. I want to invite each one of you this morning to consider engaging in one or more of the ways that the church has provided for confession. We can always be speaking person personally and intimately with Jesus, asking for forgiveness, which he gives immediately. And we can always make confession to another believer. I encourage you to begin those practices regularly if you are not already. Any mature believer who exemplifies the role of a priest to you, any mature believer, is a great person to to confess to. But there are three specific institutional ways the church offers that I want to invite you into today. The first way is through the Sunday morning liturgy. In just a few moments, you'll be invited to stand and confess your faith through the words of the Nicene Creed. As we confess the creed, ask God to affirm your belief and help your unbelief in these truths, particularly as we confess that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Immediately after the creed, we enter a time of corporate confession. I'm going to ask Josh to pause in silence just a little bit longer than we usually do during the confession. We can pray that God would illuminate any specific sins that he might be asking us to confess to another believer. And there are two types of sins in particular I want us to look at this morning. The first is a hidden sin. That's just any specific thing that you know that you've done is wrong, but you're holding on to or keeping hidden. The second type of sin is a sin of unbelief. Ask God to to highlight any area of the faith where you've fallen into unbelief. Now, unbelief is different than doubt. Um, Doubt is the experience of uncertainty. Unbelief, in this case, is more like resisting or rejecting the truth, a refusing to bring your heart and mind into conformity with the revelation of Jesus. 
pretty much every Christian can expect to experience both doubt and unbelief at different points. But in any case, if God reveals an area of unbelief, that's a sin. You can confess and receive forgiveness for as well. This should not be an anxious time. If you happen to have a hypersensitive conscience, and many people do, where you're always worried about sins you might have forgotten that you're not remembering, or if you chronically struggle with feeling unloved or unaccepted by God, I'm giving you a free pass on confession this morning. (laughs) Instead, please consider approaching a prayer minister and just asking them to help you pray for healing of your conscience or ask them to sit with you and invite the loving presence of the Lord to surround you. If God does reveal a hidden sin or sin of unbelief, and he may not, which is perfectly fine, please do consider using one of the other provisions that the church has for you. As I've alluded to, every Sunday we have prayer ministers who are trained and ready to stand or sit with you in the presence of the Lord as you make confession to him. If you feel led or prompted to speak with them during the Eucharist, please feel free to do so. They'll be up over here. Um, And finally, we have the second of three summer prayer meetings coming up in about a week and a half. On Wednesday, July 29th, it's at our ministry center, and the details are in your bulletin. The prayer meeting starts at 7 But before that, from 5 to 7 p.m., Father Aaron will be available to meet with you to hear confession personally, if that's something that would be of service to you. I want to close this sermon by drawing your attention to its very clever title, The Blessing Confessing Church. I'm very proud of it because it rhymes. I did have to stretch it a little bit. Uh, The word confessing has to stand in for more than confessing. Confessing is just the small but essential way we participate in the holiness of God. Please, as you remember this sermon and these truths, let it stand in for the more powerful, ultimate judgment and triumph of Jesus over Satan, sin, death, and destruction. And you can feel free to come up with your own clever mnemonic device to remember the connection between dealing with sin and the blessing of Jesus. Maybe... If you want to be blessing, you'd best be confessing. <laughs> or, yeah, that was the best one I could come up with, sorry. <laughs> um, this message, though, the message that without the judging Jesus, there is no blessing Jesus, was a sobering and challenging one for me personally to absorb. I find it painful to voluntarily submit myself to the judgment of Jesus. In fact, in calling you to the practice of confession, I want to confess to you that the last time I felt genuine shame for something I'd done, it took me about four months to find the courage to confess to a prayer minister. And when the prayer minister encouraged me to confess to someone else as well, it took me a lot more weeks to follow up with that. Conversation is simple, but it is not easy. But I encourage us to press into it. But I was equally sober to realize that my tendency really to avoid thinking too hard about sin and the judgment of Jesus also compromises my ability to bless others. If we, as the church, are not faithful to name sin as sin and to recognize it as the antithesis, the opposite of blessing, we abandon our role as priests to the world. If you are part of the church, you are a priest to the world. And if you abandon this role because you're too squeamish to look at sin, where else can the world go to find relief from the grip of sin? Only those willing to face the reality of sin and point to the Holy One who can deliver us from this body of death 
are fit to, to, to bless the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Creed. We believe in one God. 